something absolutely compelling about listening to the witness and testimony of somebody who is grounded in science and who claims the Word of God also as foundational in their life. It's that intersection that we're looking at today. Can you believe in both the faith and in the science? Has the rise of modern science shown that, in fact, that faith is unnecessary, an antiquated relic of a world in the past? C.S. Lewis, in his famous book, Mere Christianity, said, Ever since men were able to think, they've been wondering what this universe really is and how it came to be. Now, quick heads up. Lewis writes, since men have been able to think. Why does he say just men? Uh, women have always been able to think, right? But uh, he wrote the book about 70 years ago. So in some spots, the language comes across a bit dated. But don't let it get in the way of the basic argument for faith, which is quite brilliant. So Lewis goes on to say, very roughly... There are two views that have been held. You find summaries of these views in your notes. First, there is what's called the materialist view. People who take that view think that matter and space, the stuff of the world, just happened to exist. It always has just happened to exist. Nobody knows particularly why. And that matter behaves in a certain way, It just happens to behave that way. It's just kind of a fluke. And in behaving that way, one of the things that has been a byproduct is creatures like we ourselves who just happen to be able to think. That's one point of view, Lewis says, the materialist point of view. The world is a random event, can't be explained. It's like a giant machine, and it's always just been there. The other viewpoint, uh, a more religious viewpoint if you'd like, according to it, what's behind the universe is more like a mind than it's like anything else that we know. That's to say, there's something conscious there, something that has purpose. It prefers one thing to the other thing. There's artistry, there's order to creation. There's evidence that there is a mind at work. Neither one of those are particularly new ideas. I think we like to imagine the collision between faith and science is sort of a 20th century thing. And maybe parts of it are. But some of this goes far, far back into the pages of history, into the pages of our own scriptures. Psalm 19 verse 1 talks about the artistry of creation. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim what? the work of his hands. A lot of people today would probably say, you know, science, it seems, has offered a compelling case for the the materialist view, that that's the correct view, that the universe is, in fact, a machine, an intricate, a complex machine, but an understandable machine. And because it is such, there's no room left for a God who works, if you'd like, in the machine, or behind the machine. So this morning, what I'd like to do is pick away at that a little bit. I'd like to look at a number of questions, five of them, in fact, that relate to the subject. One caveat, um, I'm not a scientist. 
I don't pretend to be a scientist. I come from a family of scientists. My father was the head of the science program at one of the collegiate institutes in Toronto. Uh, Both my brother and my brother-in-law are practicing engineers. My sister is a PhD in human genetics. I am not. Uh, They have probably forgotten more about the many branches of science than I ever knew. But I still enjoy, I love to listen to them talk. So from that point of view, let's look at a series of questions. Here's the first one. You have this in your notes. Is science the only way to reliably know something? Bev, you touched on this. Didn't Bev touch on this beautifully? That science, as much as it has great prestige in our day, Uh, it it often sets itself up as the only reliable brand of knowledge. The short answer to that question, is science the only way, of course, is no. There's lots of other areas of knowledge. And even if we don't recognize what they are, we take them for granted in the way that we live. A lot of us remember learning something about the the scientific method in school. I mean, hands up if you remember, and do you remember at least there was a scientific method? Yeah. And remember, it starts when we make observations about the world. We all do that. Those observations lead to theories about how the world works. But then here's where science really gets going. Out of the theory, we design a hypothesis. A hypothesis is meant to test the theory. And then we come up with an experiment. We run the experiment, we record the measurements, and the outcome we hope will either confirm or not confirm the hypothesis. That's the scientific method. It's brilliant. Uh, But because science has made such amazing progress, particularly in areas of medicine and technology, there are people who would claim that that is, in fact, the only way to attain reliable knowledge. That would mean, for example, there's no such thing as moral knowledge. There's no way of designing a scientific experiment to test the rightness or wrongness of particular moral views. No such thing as spiritual knowledge or personal knowledge. Bev spoke a lot about personal knowledge, relational knowledge, emotional knowledge. The view that only knowledge that comes as a product of the scientific method is reliable. That actually has a name to it. It's one of those ism names. Beware, actually, whenever you see an ism, I-S-M, or an iti, I-T-Y, because usually what you have there is something at the core that might be true that has been taken and applied too broadly. So instead of science, what we have is scientism. Scientism. There's a a writer, I recommend him highly, he's not in your notes, but if you want to write his name down, his name is Sir John Polkinghorne, Polkinghorne. He's a Cambridge physicist, he's also an ordained Anglican priest, and he is, I think, perhaps the greatest thinker, living thinker in our day, uh, giving attention to this, um, this intersection of faith and science. And he offers, I think, a brilliant illustration of what he's getting at. Imagine somebody asking the question, why is the water boiling inside this kettle? Why is it boiling? One person can answer, because there is gas burning on the element underneath. The gas is heating the water. It's exciting the molecules into a state that causes a rise in temperature. So why is the kettle boiling? 
because it's being heated. Another person answers that question, why is the kettle boiling? Because I want a cup of tea. Which answer is right? They're both right, aren't they? One speaks about non-personal causes, mechanical causes. That's what science tends to do. The other speaks about personal causes, a person or a purpose or an intention. It's not scientific, at least not in any sort of mechanistic way, but it's true. And it's equally important in understanding how that boiling water came to be. Science involves this method that's enormously useful in navigating huge chunks of our world. But it leaves equally large chunks of the world unexplored. Human life is of great value. Don't we believe that? We believe it, we enshrine it in our most basic statements of what it means to live together in society. We hold these truths to be self-evident. I know that one's not ours. That belongs south of the border, but... but But it's in there. It's in there in all of the great documents of the great nations of the world. We know that it's true that life has value. But how do we know that? There's nothing in science that would suggest that. You can't put it in a test tube. But we would say that a society that is unable to recognize the value of human life, the existence of that as a great moral truth, is headed for catastrophe. Scientism is this dogma that says anything that can't be explained through the scientific method either doesn't exist or it doesn't matter. And here's what's really important to to understand. Scientism is a system of belief. It's an ideology. It takes faith to believe that. It takes as much faith to believe that all knowledge is confined to that one realm as it does to believe that there is a God above who is in and through and behind everything that we see and know. That's the first question. Is science the only way to reliably know something? No, it's not. It's important. Let's not diminish its importance, but it's not the only way. Question number two. Uh, You have this one in your notes as well. Has science proven that the universe has no purpose, that it's just this random machine? This was the great observation of the 18th century, of rationality. Because the universe looks like it's just an intricate clock-like affair, being driven by these precise gears and mechanisms, that somehow that fat negates the existence of a clockmaker, of somebody who designed it all. I'll give you one quote about this to give you an example of what this looks like in print. This is from a a guy in the field of science. He's a professor at Cornell University. His name is William Provine. So this is his statement. He says, let me summarize my views on modern evolutionary biology, on what it tells us loud and clear. There are no gods, no purposes, no goal-directed forces of any kind. There is no life after death. When I die, I am absolutely certain that I am going to be dead, that there is no ultimate foundation for ethics, no ultimate meaning in life, and no free will for human beings either. Those of you who have a background in science, purely as a matter of scientific inquiry, not as a a statement of faith, if you were to ask, 
Can you show me anywhere a single article in any peer-reviewed journal confirmed by a double-blind study, a study of any kind, that establishes or even begins to address a single one of those claims, mammoth claims. Can you show me that? There's not a single piece in literature, the entire literature of human biology that's even in the neighborhood, yet there's just this idea out there, floats around in the ether, that somehow something has been found that discredits faith that has eliminated God from the discourse. Here's another quote. This is from a more famous person. You remember Carl Sagan? Yes? This is what Sagan wrote. He said, We find that we live on an insignificant planet, on a humdrum star, lost in a galaxy, tucked away in some forgotten corner of the universe, in which there are far more galaxies than people. Notice all the words in there. Loaded words. Insignificant humdrum, lost, tucked away, forgotten. Those aren't scientific words, but they're loaded with meaning, right? The idea of statements like that are that somehow science, by showing us how vast, how immense, how ancient the universe might be, has shown us that human beings are somehow random and insignificant, that have no worth or dignity or value which, of course, is one of the things that faith wants to say. The idea that that there's a contrast between the immensity of the universe, its timelessness, and the brevity of human life, we didn't invent that idea either. It's not new to us. Again, the psalm writer. Have a look at this from the psalms. It says, When I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, What are we, human beings, that you're mindful of us, that you care for us? The psalm writer doesn't go on to say that the way for us to settle the question is just to sort of distort the scale of things. Let's pretend the earth is the center of the universe. Everything revolves around us. Let's pretend that human beings are huge and the stars are tiny and the moon and the heavenly bodies, these are all small. No, here's what, here's what the psalmist says. He says, yet you, Lord, have created human beings with glory and honor. You've crowned them. You've made them transcendent beings. You've made them a little lower than the angels, crowning them with glory and honor. Human beings who are somehow endowed with a little spark of the divine image. They have the capacity to learn and to create They have the weight that comes with being a moral agent. We make choices of good and bad, and we're responsible for our choices. We're given the task of caring for creation. It's staggering, all of it. That's why we respond to people the way that we do. Does anybody here have grandchildren? Of course. Pastor Sheldon is here, and Sheila, for the first time, with their new granddaughter. So everybody wave and say, Hi, Laura. Yeah. All those of you who have uh, grandchildren, though, online or here, raise your hands. We can't see you online, of course, but you can see us. Now, thinking about your grandchildren, of course, let me ask you, how many of you are convinced that your grandchildren are, of course, the smartest, 
and the best looking and the most gifted of all the grandchildren out there in the world. I mean, of course you believe that, right? Why is it that we have those kind of feelings when we look into the eyes of a child? Because we know that when we see a human being, what we're looking at is not just a blob of tissue. It's not just some random collection of atoms jiggling together. We know this. If significance were measured just by size, whales would be the most important thing on the planet. Maybe they are. But the least important thing on the planet would probably be a virus. Anybody want to suggest that viruses aren't important these days? The universe has a way of evoking a sense of wonder in us, doesn't it? It's a remarkably stubborn thing. Wonder, this kind of indistinguishable realization that it's not just that something is, but that that something is good. It's kind of the way that the, the human heart echoes those words that were repeated so frequently in Genesis. God spoke, and it was so and so, and God saw it, and he said, it's good. It's good. And we know it is. And we know it, and wonder moves us to worship. And if you're thoughtful, you have to ask the question, if our hunger and our wonder about the world are a meaning or a clue to something that's beyond just material reality, then what does that say about where our heart really belongs? Here's a third question. This is an interesting one, actually. Uh, Haven't science and religion always been at war with each other? Uh, Don't they offer competing, sort of rival explanations of the way that things are. That warfare view, that faith and science are at odds, inevitably always have been. Uh, I mean, there are some classic examples. The one that's most frequently cited, 1633. The Catholic Church finds a scientist, a man named Galileo, guilty of heresy. Why? Well, on the surface, because he was teaching the view that the earth revolves around the sun rather than the other way around. But here's the thing. Galileo was a man of deep and searing faith. He was not a critic or or an unfaithful person. He wasn't the first to suggest that. In fact, he and the Pope, they were frequently at odds. But in the playing out of that period of history, when so often we get entrenched in one worldview and have to get into another, the charge levied against him was heresy. People of faith, and I mean this of Christians, those on every side of contentious debates, we can get into trouble when we assume too quickly that the Bible can only be interpreted in one way, our way. And particularly when we assume that that way prohibits scientific examination. No, that's off limits. You can't look at that. There are statements in the Bible, and this is the one that led to the controversy around the time of Copernicus and Galileo, like this one from 1 Chronicles 16. It says, The earth is firmly established on its foundation, and it cannot be moved. 
And so there are people who would look at that verse and say, well, that's about science. That means the earth must be the unmovable center of the universe, and therefore we shouldn't study it. We shouldn't examine it scientifically. But maybe we weren't reading the Bible in the right way. Christians and thoughtful people in general should be cautious at least about being too quick to assume that that we can infer the same level of scientific knowledge from every passage of Scripture that we read. You wouldn't assume that if you were reading poetry or, or, or a prose story like a parable, which aren't so much about science but about a deeper truth. But let's, let's go a little step further about this supposed warfare between faith and science because, in fact, it's a distortion of history. A man by the name of Rodney Stark, uh, Baylor University, uh, did a study on science and scientists in 17th century Europe. This is kind of the, the cradle of modern Western science. It was all happening there. It was all happening then. He studied the 52 leading scientists. Of the 52, he said 62% of them were what he called devout believers. A further 35% of them were conventionally still Christian and religious. Only 2% were skeptics. And of course, in 17th century Europe, this was the great rise of skepticism. But in spite of the fact that the world is going in one direction, less than 2% of all the prominent scientists, in fact, were among the skeptics in that society. Not only were science and faith not enemies, As one writer, Paul Chamberlain, said, specialist in the history of science, the scientific enterprise as we know it would not exist had it not been for Christianity. Again, this kind of goes unacknowledged in our day. Another scientist, a man by the name of John Houghton, points out that we have this idea, incorrectly, that belief in God actually get, got started because of our inability to understand the world. It's a false belief. So people didn't understand how thunder came to be, so they invented Thor. Thor, the god of thunder. The gods did it. They didn't understand what governed the movement of the moon, so they made up the goddess Diana. Diana did it. They didn't understand why people would live in Mississauga in November when they could live in Tahiti, but they still don't understand that. There's no God that explains that. But faith, faith in God is not based on gaps. I mean, there was a time, there maybe still is a time when people do this, that, that really what faith does is address all the gaps that science cannot fill. The problem with the God of the gaps theory is that the more things that science begins to understand, the fewer the gaps get to be. The God of the gaps relegates God to what's left over. That's really a, that's a dangerous theology. Faith in God is based on the observation of meaning and value and artistry in the world. The very things that underlie the rise of science itself. Science, to get started, required a worldview that said, and this was not a common worldview, that the universe is an ordered thing, that there is design to it, that it's meant to be understandable, that it's not chaotic, that it can be known and searched and probed and understood. The notion that the world is orderly and it it would reward investigation, that's something that could only begin with a worldview that was rooted 
in the God of Scripture. So one of the most prominent thinkers of the 20th century, Alfred North Whitehead, said when he was asked for the causes of the rises of science, he said what was most important, inevitably, was the insistence on the rationality of God. That God made the universe a rational place, and that the investigation of the universe could undergo scrutiny of the rational mind. What I'd like to do for for 10 or 15 minutes is look at probably the two most contentious case studies of of the intersection of faith and science. We'll look at the Genesis story of origins, and then we'll look at the universe, the universal story of origins, the beginning of life itself in the universe. Um, as the evolutionary theory disproved the book of Genesis, I mean, that's the hot-button topic, isn't it? At least we think it is. It certainly is in the United States, and because we... We share such a close border and community. It trickles across here. It might surprise you to know that the vast population of the world are not caught up in the debate the way that that teachers and courts and schools and pastors and politicians are on our side of the pond. I, I think that probably has something to do with the scope trial in the U.S. in the in the 1920s where you had kind of the, the, the liberal north flexing its theological muscles against the more conservative south. But whatever it is, the kind of questions that are getting asked about this debate really are questions that, that have not been asked in that way for much of history and still are not being asked that way in much of the world. It doesn't mean they shouldn't be asked. I just... I want you to realize what a uniquely sort of North American phenomenon this is. For many of us, at least, this is a controversial thing. Imagine a little boy comes up to his dad and says, Dad, where did human beings come from? Father says, well, we descended from apes. And little boy goes to his mom and says, Mom, where did human beings come from? And, and mom says, we were created by God in God's image. Boy says, Dad said we descended from apes. And Mom says, well, he's talking about his side of the family, right? (laughs) But that's how the debate goes. It feels like in the church, we have two sides of the family on this one. I'll say a word about Genesis. I'll say a word about evolution. But let me be clear here. I'm a student of scriptures, and I'm a student of God's creation, just like all of you. I'm trying to read the big book of creation alongside the sacred book of Scripture. Some will want to read one more than the other. I'm really trying my best to read both. And I know that I'm not alone. I know that there are people who have landed in all kinds of different places on this issue. And you'll see some of those places indicated in the study outline that Pastor Sheldon prepared for this week. You'll see names like creationism, young earth creationism and old earth creationism, theistic evolution, intelligent design. Now, we don't have 
time to summarize all of those things, and I'm not going to try and do that. What I thought I'd like to do with our time, though, is, is give you a way of reading Genesis. And maybe it's something new to you. And I'm not suggesting, again, that it's the only view. Uh, I won't suggest to you that it's necessarily the right view. It's, it's a view that I've come to to try and hold together those two things, the big book of creation and the sacred book of God's word. It's a view that, that doesn't try and make so many claims about how or how long, but does provide a way of reading the book of origins. The best book that I have read about Genesis, and you'll find it in the bibliography for our study this week, is a book by a Wheaton College Old Testament professor who is, I think, universally recognized now as as the leading expert on the world of the ancient Near East. What was it like back then? What is it that they, they thought about the world? What kind of questions were they asking? And he, he begins by, by saying, Walton, quite rightly, that when you're studying the Bible, that you always have to start by asking how the audience understood what was being said in the day that it was written. You don't end there because we believe that it's a living thing, that God still speaks to us. But you have to start there, because the Bible always emerges out of a living conversation that happened in its day between God and his people. And we fall into some strange ideas sometimes when we assume that I don't have to begin there. I I don't have to look at the original context. I don't have to ask what its first readers would have understood. I can just take whatever I want and impose it on the text, my my own cultural values, my own understanding, my own agenda. There is, I think, a kind of arrogance to that, isn't there? A failure in humility when we say, I won't pay attention to any of that because in the end it's about me and my worldview and and my interpretation. Well, Walton spent a long time, his entire career, looking at this. What was the conversation that was going on in the world when Genesis was written? Where did we come from? How did the earth get there? I mean, those are questions we've always asked as human beings. But they asked it in a very different way. And and I think that's really helpful to acknowledge the differences. I grew up in a church. I didn't know much about that conversation way back then that it was going on. I just sort of assumed that the Bible was like a a magic book, dropped out of heaven, complete and bound with gold edges and maps in the back and and little flowcharts and and outlines. And so it it was interesting. It was actually kind of threatening to me to begin to wrestle with the idea that there's this conversation going on. And to accept that the language of Genesis, that I would read one way, would have been part of a broader conversation going on in the world that, that they would read a different way. In the ancient world, they were not particularly concerned with how, got, how something got here from nothing. That's a big question of science, right? But what they were concerned about is how order triumphs over chaos, You look at all of the questions being asked in those ancient accounts of the world. That's what their stories were about. Genesis is primarily about how the one true God, the good God, is fashioning the cosmos into a kind of temple. If you were to read Genesis 1 and 2, 
with the eyes that are informed by the rest of the Old Testament, you'd see it's filled with imagery of the temple. Creation is a temple. What does that mean? Well, what is a temple? A temple is where God dwells. So you read the creation account as the account of how God would make a world where he would take up residence and he would deploy his image bearers, human beings who carry the image of God, and they would extend his reign and they would be caretakers so that all the earth could be ordered. Again, order out of chaos. It would become a sacred space where God could dwell with his people. And maybe you've never heard that before. But if you look carefully at Genesis 1 and 2, you'll find that it's teeming with those images. And then if you go back and look at the book of Leviticus, which is all about how you uh, furnish the temple, you'll find that so many of those furnishings point to the cosmos. The world is a temple. The temple reflects the world, the cosmos. Of course, I realize in our day um, that Christians, we, we still wrestle with it. And, and for many of us, many of you, you may wrestle with it differently. Um, for my part, I just come to rest, and I can rest okay on the idea that it's not so much about how or how long or the role of mutation or natural selection or any of the other 21st century terms that weren't part of the conversation going on then. The questions just weren't even around. But Genesis is addressing, and profoundly so, the questions that were around back then. And it laid out the identity of human beings and our place in the world with matchless, world-changing truth. Is it legitimate for science to investigate these things? Of course it is. I want to say, though, a word here, and it's, it's more of a personal word. Um, to those of us uh, who are closer to the beginning of our journey than the end, um, to those bright young people, I want to acknowledge that I have seen far too many of you and your peers exposed to bad science, to shoddy thinking, to, to false claims, to misguided ideas, well-intentioned, but misguided. And this comes on all sides of the debate, from people who think that they are defending the Bible when in fact what they're really defending is a bad interpretation of the Bible. And I'm not going to try and camp out on any one position or the other, but just recognize that, that for so many of these bright young people, they go off to pursue further education, higher education, and they begin to read and then they discover, and then they think, we were misinformed. And they think they have to choose between the Bible and truth. You don't. We can do better than that as a church. I think it's part of God's calling as a church to be thoughtful people, to be humble before the truth, to say the truth of Scripture and the truth of creation line up. On the other hand, I also want to say this to the same group of young people. 
Be wary when scientists misuse the language of theory, the theory of evolution, for example, to make bold, sweeping, equally arrogant claims about things that are far beyond their ability to claim knowledge. Make claims about human identity and worth and value that are patently false and destructive. Enough on that. Last question, and then we'll wrap it up. Doesn't the Big Bang show that the universe didn't need God at all to create it? A lot of you have heard about the Big Bang before. That's not New Year's Eve, but uh, that the universe had a beginning. It's fascinating stuff. A hundred years ago, before this idea emerged, scientists, again, just had sort of assumed that the world always existed. It always was. No beginning to it. Uh, the majority of physicists or cosmologists today would believe that the universe is actually about 13.798 billion years old. And that it began with something commonly now known as the Big Bang. This astounding notion that there was a point of, of singularity that erupts in a burst of creative majesty and everything comes out of it. It's wild stuff. Uh, if you've never read any of this, you... You should. It's fascinating stuff to read. But for scientists who had to come to grips over the last century with the notion that there was a beginning to things, this was really quite astounding. Bev, you mentioned Francis Collins. Uh, let me quote from him, because it is a marvelous book. If, if you're reading only one book this week, uh, this would probably be the one, The Language of God by Francis Collins. But he wrote... The existence of the Big Bang begs the question of what came before that, of who or what was responsible, and it certainly demonstrates the limits of science as no other phenomenon has done. The sense of awe created by these realizations has caused more than a few agnostic scientists to sound downright theological. In a book called God and the Astronomers, this is Francis Collins still, The physicist Robert Jastrow wrote this final paragraph. Maybe you've heard this before. At this moment, it seems as though science will never be able to raise the curtain on the mystery of creation. And for the scientist who has lived their life by faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. They've scaled the mountains of ignorance. They're about to conquer the highest peak. They pull themselves over the final rock, and they're greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. Isn't that great? Turns out that little phrase, in the beginning, starts to look a whole lot different than it did just a hundred years ago. And you know, there's something even more staggering than this evidence that the universe had this definable beginning. It's that the universe seems in the strangest ways to have been designed to support life. It's sometimes called the anthropic principle. Anthropos is the word for man. The anthropic principle that... Uh, that the universe is remarkably fine-tuned in a bunch of amazing ways to support life. I'll give you an example. About one millisecond 
one millisecond after the Big Bang, according to the theory, the universe cooled down enough that what begins to condense out are quarks and anti-quarks. You've heard that language before? CBC has a, um, a science program called Quarks and Quarks, right? These are the things. These are these subatomic particles that condense out a millisecond after that burst of creation, the Big Bang. And the way I understand it is that any quark that encounters an anti-quark are completely annihilated. They cease to exist, and the only thing that emerges from it is a photon, a particle of light. In the beginning, there was light. But if all there was, other than that, was complete annihilation, if for every quark there was an anti-quark, there would be nothing else. But it turns out there are not an equal number of quarks and anti-quarks. The symmetry that you would expect to find is not there. Instead, there's something nobody would have predicted. It turns out that for every one billion anti-quarks, there is one extra quark. The reason for this asymmetry, nobody really knows. But what we do know is that had they been the same in number, there would be nothing. The world, the universe, everything that exists because of a one in a billion quark that emerges from that moment of creation. So maybe turn to the person next to you and just look them in the eyes and say, you're one in a billion. You were one in a billion. <laughs> but not just this. I mean, it turns out that there's all kinds of things, 15 different constants in the universe that we know of. The precise force of gravity such that if it was altered enough that you would weigh even a hundredth of a pound less one way or another, the universe and all life as you know it would cease to exist. It's exactly what it needs to be. There are these constants whose values would have to be exactly what they are, sometimes out to the one hundredth, the one thousandth of a decimal point in order to support life. And by the way, it just turns out that's exactly the way they are. It's so striking. It's so striking that Stephen Hawking, who is not a person of faith, a physicist who most of you will know, said it would be very difficult to explain why the universe should have begun the way it did, except as the act of a God who intended to create life, beings like us. That was a remarkable statement, because, of course, Stephen Hawking doesn't believe in God who made people like us. And so he was left with only one other option. And it's the option that, uh, that a number of, uh, of atheists or agnostic physicists have followed him. If, if there was no design, no intent, no purpose, no goodness behind it, then they've conjured up this theory of the multiverse. Have you heard of this? that there are unaccountable and uncountable millions of universes. We're not able to see them or detect them. It just turns out that we live in one through a sheer random throw of the dice has made life livable. So in the absence of a God who created the world with intent and design to support life, you have to imagine that our universe, vast as it is, is one of countless 
millions or trillions. And just, we got lucky in the lottery. To put it mildly, the notion of the multiverse is something that hasn't been proven, can't even be tested. It's an act of faith. No more so, in fact, I would argue less so, than belief in the artistry and design of an infinite creative mind. Hmm. I think we've said enough. I wanted to close just with a couple of words of, of counsel for the, for the church. Uh, the first is for those of you who work in the sciences, and I know we've got lots of you joining us online, some of you in the room in, in medicine, in technology, in research, in engineering. Um, I know because some of you in, in quiet conversation have said, you know, when I'm at work, with a bunch of other scientists, they're really skeptical about me because of my faith. They're suspicious of me. And then I come to church, and I have to wrestle with how to interpret and apply the Bible. So it feels like when I'm at work, they're suspicious of me because of my faith, and when I'm at church, I struggle because of my science, and I just don't feel like there's any place where I really belong. We want to be that place. We want to say today to all of you who, who do science, who teach, who research, uh, who work in medicine and engineering and biology and chemistry and physics and neurosciences, whatever it is, what you're doing is a noble thing. You are thinking the thoughts of God after him. You are reading that big book of creation while you're studying the sacred book of scriptures. And I think you are obeying the command of God set down way back in Genesis when he says that you are to learn about, to be curious about, to discover and take care as stewards of this earth. So just keep learning and keep teaching us and be patient with us. And we're going to try and be our best selves for you around this one. And I guess that's the other thing I wanted to say, and that's for the rest of us. You consider you're a person of faith around this one, or even if you're not, let's aspire to be a place where humbly, humbly we submit ourselves to the truth. You must understand this about Jesus. If you understand nothing else about him, that Jesus is the kind of person who would be the first to say to you that you should follow the truth wherever it leads And it's important to say that because in our day, there's this misguided notion that some people, secularists or scientists, are open to truth and that faith communities are closed to it. That those Jesus people, they they won't listen. You can't reason with them because of their adherence to something written down in a dusty old book long ago. That's simply not true. That book is a part of a great thoughtful conversation that went on for a long time with equally thoughtful people. And Jesus, again, is the first who would tell you, you must follow the truth wherever it leads. And ultimately, it leads back to him. I am the way, he said, and the truth and the life. Let me pray with you.
you bow your heads and open your eyes to God, I want you to hear something that that was written about Jesus 2,000 years ago. And, and I hope you're awed by it. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created by him and for him. God help every one of us to be open and humble before the truth. How odd we are, how humbled we are by this reality in which we find ourselves. Thank you, God, for Jesus. Thank you for making it all. Thank you that in the vastness of the universe that you care about our little lives, that you notice. That in Jesus you actually became like us. That you sacrificed for us. You gave us hope. How grateful we are. In response, we give you the worship of our minds and of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.